it's not inventing the thing that matters. It's making it cheap that matters, right? So the internet, for example, it substantially existed full internet in about 1950. Okay, and it was used in um, uh, like office uh, settings, and you know, uh, it, it technologically it essentially existed. Um, what made the internet a revolution was making it cheap, right? So that was Moore's law, uh, and you know, specific elements like, for example, email. Right, you know, and and I mean, again, email—the idea of uh, writing a message and sending it from person to person—this was not new. You're listening to the Wake Up Podcast with Alex Fetsky, the place where the most dynamic thinkers and practitioners in the world drop truth bombs and contrarian viewpoints to help you become the best version of yourself. Find us on the Fountain app and send us a boost with a comment. Peter Sainonji joins me again for part two of the Bitcoin is a Peaceful Revolution series. Peter, as I mentioned, is a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation and the Mises Institute, as well as being a contributor to Zero Hedge. In this episode, we begin to dive into the article itself. Human history being a long battle of centralization versus decentralization, of power versus people, why and how Bitcoin fundamentally changes this, along with our current 400-year golden age, beginning with the printing press. We even looked at Chinese history. Lots of fascinating stuff. I want to thank, once again, Unchained Capital and Blockwork Solutions for helping support the Bitcoin Times and ensuring that it stays free for everyone online. If you're interested in proper self-custody or stacking some KYC-free sats via mining, you can learn more about each of them via the links in the show notes. Finally, remember to follow Peter on Twitter at Prof Stonji and subscribe to the Wake Up Podcast. Enjoy the show. Let's move on to the article, finally. Uh, we'll, <laughs> yeah, right. So, so this, this will be part two. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just start with a quote that you come out of the gates with, which is, human history is a long battle of centralization versus decentralization of power versus people. Bitcoin fundamentally changes this. So question for you is, what, why does Bitcoin change that battle and, and what about that battle does it change? It disarms the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, one of the most powerful tools of control that the state has ever found is control of the currency. Um, and, you know, every time that it got a hold of it, and it has done that hundreds of times, right? Whether it's debasing the currency with base metals, which was always a popular choice through history, or whether uh, it was fiat, which really started in about the year 950. Um, every single time it was tried, uh, it led to the same outcome, which was a totalitarian state that hyperinflated the, well, first it would start wars with everybody, uh, and literally everybody, and then it would hyperinflate. All right. And this is such a regular pattern. It should honestly be taught in schools. Uh, it's, it's horrific at this point for all that we learn about the Nazis and this and that, Mm -hmm. this pattern, the fact that, I mean, this is written in stone, man, we have done this hundreds of times. Uh, and we unfortunately started down that road, uh, you know, principally around 1914 and what makes it especially tragic, uh, this time around, I mean, every time it ends in tragedy, but what makes it really tragic this time around is, you know, we'd alluded to earlier, 
we had basically solved the puzzle by the 1800s. The entire earth was getting more prosperous at the same Mm -hmm. time, Mm -hmm. including Mm -hmm. colonies everywhere was getting unimaginably prosperous. Uh, We had human rights that were spreading. Uh, We had excellent governments um, uh, in historical context. I mean, they're still criminals, but relative to what we've suffered in the past, um, you know, government take was like 5% of, you know, uh, what society would produce. Uh, I mean, we had really reached the pinnacle. As a result, we had, you know, incredible economic growth, uh, incredible technological growth. Uh, written about this before that, you know, essentially we, for the past hundred years, we are living on the fumes mm-hmm. of the 1800s. Uh, if you take Elon Musk, okay, every single thing that Elon Musk does, and Elon Musk, I think is, is incredible. Um, I, I can't believe he exists. He is really incredible, if only for the things he's invented. But every single one of those was invented in the 1800s. And it was substantially forgotten for one reason or another. I mean, not forgotten. It was it was neglected, okay, for one reason or another, to one degree or another. Um, subways, pneumatic tubes, um, the uh, electric cars, uh, space flight, everything was invented. And, you know, the internet, the computer, electricity, magnetism, radios, TV, literally anything in modern society that you can name was invented in about a 30-year period between about 1870, 40 years, 1910, all of it was invented in there. And we are, you know, we're almost like the barbarian tribes after the fall of Rome. You know, mm-hmm. we've got the cows in the forum. Okay. And, and, and we're looking at these, you know, amazing things that, you know, the previous, you know, the old people or the old religion, whatever it is, um, they built. And, you know, we're, we're living off the proceeds of it for the moment. Um, we are killing that golden goose, uh, quite quickly at the moment, but that's what makes it so tragic is that we are following this written in stone path to disaster that begins with fiat money. And that's coming off of having just freaking cracked the code. It is, it's frustrating. It's like people, you look, look at what you're about to lose. Interesting. Okay. I, Is this that period is what you're referring to? Is that kind of like the golden age that Seyfedin kind of talks about and things like that, that the Austrians talk about like that? Yes. And it, it's the the standard term for it in the U.S. anyway is the Gilded Age. The Gilded Age. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And uh, that's, of course, the term used by the people who hated it, who, you know, uh, left wing journalists. And that's because everybody at the time knew it was a golden age. So the reason mm-hmm. why Gilded Age had, you know, currency, the reason why it was a funny comment was because everybody knew it was a golden age. Mm-hmm. And so by calling it a Gilded Age, they'd basically say, look, there's some homeless drunk guy. So, you know, clearly it's not really the golden age because look at this guy. And so, you know, they were trying to say it was, you know, it was all fake on the inside. It looks great, but it's not. Uh, and of course, you know, what they were using was they were basically holding up the examples of the unfinished work right so you know the golden age was, was making everything better so rapidly but of course it doesn't happen in a in a microsecond you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it takes time so you know they were emphasizing all of the remaining stuff to do um and 
you know, uh, and I mean, that was a period. It was it was just uh, an astounding period that I hope we can recapture that. And to be fair, OK, when we get too pessimistic. Right. Uh, one of my you know, favorite memes is 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 the cycles. Right. Polybius, the cycles. And, you know, we talk about that in the in the article. Um, but to put it in perspective, if we take the United States in 1865, so that was right at the end of the Civil War. We were living under a dictator. It was hyperinflation. Uh, he was uh, putting uh, unfriendly journalists in prison. Uh, Canada actually united because it was convinced that this maniacal dictator was going to invade. It was literally the reason for Canada's federation was Lincoln. You're talking about Lincoln. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we were living under this maniacal dictatorship uh, in hyperinflation. And 15 years later, the golden age started. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, you know, I mean, to put it in perspective, um, when we talk about the cycle, the bad part of the cycle doesn't have to last very long. <laughs> it, mm. can be, it can be quite short. Uh, I don't cheer for it because there are going to be a lot of victims. Uh, but, you know, to be fair, I mean, in the U.S. case, uh, we came out of there was a lot of blood during the war. But, you know, uh, between the process of this maniacal dictatorship with hyperinflation coming into golden age, there was actually essentially no bloodshed in there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, mm-hmm. you know, there is hope. Um, the frog may yet uh, jump out of the uh, boiling pot, but, you know, and in that, so what I'm hoping is that we can at a minimum skip that disruption altogether, right? By disarming the state before it gets worse. And, you know, in the Lincoln example, that that really is, I think, the best case example, right? For the vast majority of cases where this has happened in history, it has not ended that easily. Um, there may also be reasons why the you know quick recovery from Lincoln might have been unique to America, right? America has a very unique constitution. Uh, the constitution was written by a bunch of freakishly libertarian mutants. They were mm-hmm. Englishmen. Okay, so I'm 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 not trying to claim you know rah rah Texas here. Um, <laughs> you know this was an English invention by a bunch of Englishmen, um, but it was really uh, an amazing invention. And it's possible that the only reason that America could go from zero to hero is because we did still have that constitution. We also had the political culture that grew out of it. Mm. Um, we also, by the way, you know, part of that was reestablishing hard money. And in the case of Lincoln, we hadn't had uh, fiat money for very long. Uh, I mm. believe it might have been only about five years. Um, so, you know, the gold standard was very much in people's minds. Um, the government during the Civil War had promised that this is just going to be a temporary thing. Everybody loves gold. Everybody knows we need gold. This is we just need this for a sec, guys. We're, we're just going to have to take everything from you for just a sec. And then mm-hmm. we're going to give it back. Uh, And so it's possible that, you know, that sort of best case scenario may not um, happen today. Uh, American political culture has has changed substantially. We've had uh, fiat, you know, for I mean, depending on how you count it uh, for, you know, at least 50 years. Um, For most people in the U.S., fiat is, uh, you know, gold standard is just completely crazy town. Uh, Other countries are worse. Um, Other English speaking countries are you know, substantially worse than the U.S. in every respect, in every one of those respects. Uh, countries outside of, you know, the English-speaking world, um, you know, again, I mean, it, it, in other words, it just goes downhill from there. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Right. What you mentioned about um, 
Lincoln is a, so I, I love unpopular opinions. In fact, I was going to call the fucking podcast unpopular opinions. So, so that one strikes me as an unpopular opinion. One, one that I would agree with. Uh, so I, I don't know much. I don't know enough about uh, us history other than, you know, the, the little that I know about Lincoln, uh, uniting the United States and basically forming a federal government to me was like one of the, the nails in the coffin, right? Like for America is like it, it removed the ability for, at least as far as I understand it, removed the ability for the, for the states to secede. Right. So he, he kind of enlivened the, the, the federal uh, state basically. And, and for me, I I wrote a piece uh, when Trump actually lost the election. I said, you know, uh, rest in peace, America. Um, You know, the, you know, the, that, that was kind of like the last nail in the coffin, but the first nail in the coffin was actually Lincoln and a bunch of people called me an asshole for that. But anyway, I, I would, you're, you're clearly more well-read in that space. So, so talk to me about why Lincoln was a, um, to go on a tangent here. What, why was he a dictator? So previous to Lincoln, um, yeah, the sort of shorthand people say Lincoln united the country. Of, of, of course, the country was united in, you know, 1787. Um, <laughs> it was actually united before that under a different uh, constitution, which was better. Um, but at any rate, so, right, it had been united for a long time. What Lincoln did was turn it into a prison, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, just he basically for, uh, reacted to a Brexit uh, with a war. And in fact, it remains legal to exit the Union. Um, mm-hmm. He did not put in a law forbidding, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, you're still so Americans seem to assume that there would be a civil war uh, if, say, you know, California or Texas left. But uh, I mean, why? Why would there be? Uh, I think, honestly, in today's political climate, if all the red state people wanted to leave, I think the blue staters would say good riddance. And I know for sure that if California wanted to leave, the red staters would say, don't let the door hit you on the butt. Um, so I don't think we'd have another Lincoln. Uh, it was not precedent setting. There was no legal framework put in after the war to, you know, to make it illegal. Um, but Reagan, or Reagan, <laughs> Lincoln, <laughs> Reagan is kind of the anti-Lincoln. Um, right. What Lincoln did was he basically pulled out of his rear end the idea that uh, for some reason you were, allow- you were not allowed to secede. Previous to that, the threat of secession had always been a constraint on federal power. Mm -hmm. So the way that the constitution, the U S constitution is structured is that there are very, very small number of things that the federal government is allowed to do like roads or regulating the amount of gold. Okay. Uh, And in other words, if a, if a gold coin says that it has one ounce of gold, then the government is allowed to ensure that it has one ounce of gold. This is what the Mm -hmm. word regulation meant to make regular. Right? Mm-hmm. If one thing says one ounce and the other thing is not an ounce, then you have to make those match. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that, that was, by the way, the only authority over currency. It does not have the authority uh, to print fiat money. Um, but anyway, the way that the U.S. Constitution is structured is that you have this very, very small list of things the federal government is allowed to do and everything else is forbidden. This is the, uh, the Ninth and the Tenth Amendments. They very explicitly say everything else you cannot do. The states can do it. The states can do anything they bloody well please. You cannot do it. Uh, so, and, you know, it, it, the powers are reserved for the states, comma, or the people. All right. And what Lincoln did was ran a truck through that and said, no, now we have a star chamber. All right. So the, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is what the Constitution says. The Constitution says, I'm only allowed to do this very, very small number of things that are harmless. Uh, 
But guess what? I don't want to do those. I want to do a whole bunch of other stuff and uh, I'm just going to do it. And who's going to stop me? You know, how many uh, divisions does the Pope have? Uh, and so, I mean, in a sense, yes, it was dictator. Uh, you know, I mean, it was dictatorship. Uh, what was impressive is how quickly the country snapped right back. Uh, they didn't snap back in every respect. It was treated as, and it still is treated as precedent, uh, that you can make war on places that want to leave. You know, but of course, I mean, America itself seceded from Britain. So, you know, if 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 the rule is you can't leave countries once you join them, then we have to give the Republic back to Queen Elizabeth, uh, who was violently dispossessed um, by the patriots, uh, well, by the, you know, by the traitors in that context. Uh, so at any rate, right, that that was kind of Lincoln's sin. Um, and, you know, the U.S., uh, I mean, this is also true of Britain, but there have been a number of times where the, it, it has gone through dictators and snapped back surprisingly fast. Uh, Cromwell, um, the uh, post-war, you know, during World War II, Britain, for example, had a department that would decide what job you were going to do when you grow up, and you had no say in the matter, right? And I, I mean, that that is communism. We have a word for that. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, and I mean, a lot of these things snapped back, uh, which is kind of impressive. So, you know, just kind of before people jump off the ledge, do keep in mind that, you know, the worse it gets, it tends to snap back harder. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, the trick there is that the elite, I mean, our elite at this moment is, I think, particularly well entrenched. Um, they're, you know, they've got a lot of uh, mechanisms uh, of sustaining themselves. Uh, I do think that they're going to fight back. Um, now, I mean, the beauty of it is that you know, every person who drives a car in New York, they don't really care about everything else in New York. They don't care what, you know, about the big picture of traffic patterns. They care about the car in front of them and the car behind them. Okay. And this describes most humans in life. There, there's, you know, this is actually a basis of Austrian economics called methodological individualism. So, I mean, most people who are in the elite, first of all, they don't realize they're in the elite. People don't even know. You can sit them down, you know, like I don't know, some attendee at World Economic Forum, and you can say, "Are you are you part of the cabal that runs the world?" And they'll say, "No, of course not." They'll pass the lie detector. <laughs> they're 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 not aware of it. Um, you know, you can only see it from the outside because they lack perspective. Uh, but the other thing is that they, you know, if if the collapse comes, it's surprising. Um, you know, the elite, uh, you know, they, they, there's some point where they say, okay, just please kill me last. Um, they, you know, they can crumble surprisingly fast. Mm -hmm. And you know, again, mm -hmm. this has happened many times, um, in history and, you know, particularly that happens to elites that have failed to gain popular acceptance. Right. So if you look at the French revolution, for example, uh, you know, France was the dominant country at the time. It was, it was the overwhelming superpower really of earth. Uh, in the early 1600, uh, 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 1700s, and it collapsed like a house of cards. I mean, it was shocking. Yeah, yeah. Because it had lost the people. And, you know, we aren't and probably shouldn't get into any um, discussion of uh, how elections are run, um, but that is a silver lining on that front as well, that were a country to manipulate elections, it would go through the exact same process, which is that that administration would become horrifically, shockingly unpopular. Uh, and it, it, you could argue that that would actually be good for the eventual pendulum swing. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a question in towards the end around um, yep. accelerationism. Uh, but we'll, uh, 
we'll, we'll say that on towards the end. There was, fuck, there was something that popped into mind as you were talking then. Um, not about the French. Uh, shit, what were you saying just before the French? Oh, man. Ah, <laughs> uh, fuck. It was a... Oh, actually, that's, that's what I had. That's what I had. Um, okay. May I ask that yeah. we, we refrain from using the word elite and we transform it to parasite? Uh, because ah, th- this, sure. this is something I've been using recently. So, so no, 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 no. Yeah, 20, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. In, in 2020, I basically, I wrote an article which was called in support of the elite and being an elite. And what I, what I basically said in there, I said the, the etymology, the word elite means to be exceptional at something. And I kind of said that to me, what seems to have happened is parasites have kind of co-opted that word. Yeah. And basically weaponized it in such a way that the average person begins to despise or envy the people who are genuinely like elite because there is people like for me elite means like Hussein Bolt or you know Bruce Lee or like you know uh I don't know LeBron James like achieved something Correct. That's what, so to be elite means to be, you know, the the exceptional one uh, in in a crowd. So when I look at like a Christine Lagarde, for example, or, or a Schwab, like they're the last, the last word that comes to mind is like elite. To me, the word that comes to mind is parasite, like, because they don't produce anything. They're just fucking leech. They suck. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, That is an excellent point. Um, You know, I mean, one distinction would be bottom up elite versus top down. Yeah. Yeah. And and Hopper talks about this, right? He talks about like a natural elite, like people who are naturally aristocratic, not because they were, you know, decreed to be such, but that they, they, they grew into that. They earned their authority. And, And I mean, that's how we've always lived. I mean, coming back to conservative values, it's that you know, you, you had the master and the apprentice and the master wasn't a fucking master just because someone said so. Like he had 10, 20, 30, 40 years of experience of doing yep. something and he yep. had a natural authority over his apprentice because he was elite in comparison to him. And we were talking about that earlier, right? We were talking about the distinction between the Bitcoin, you know, social layer and the Absolutely. universal yeah. social layer. Yep. Yep. Right. That's a and decreed then- elite versus a versus a natural elite. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, parasite is an absolute uh, accurate term for them. Uh, I think you're right, particularly in this age where yes. so many of those elite institutions um, are, you know, sort of being captured in organized campaigns. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. This is not a natural evolution, uh, the way that they're capturing, you know, Harvard or the, you know, when the American Actuarial Association comes out with opinions about redistribution of uh, assets by race. <laughs> This is this is not really what I mean. You know how did, how did you guys arrive at this conclusion? I mean, these are just hostile takeovers, um, and you know, bringing it back to currency. Um, I mean, that's that's been sort of uh, you know one of the transformations I think uh, that we have seen um, with the government takeover of currency is that those parasites have been converted into predators. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, traditionally, uh, uh, so I used to teach in Taiwan uh, for years at university there. And one of the areas I'm really interested in is Chinese history. Uh, and through most of uh, Chinese history until very recently, uh, the so there was typically an entrance examination in order to become a civil servant. And that entrance examination, 
the questions on the exam and therefore the associated study material, that was taken collectively, that's what we would today call a constitution. Okay. In other words, that was a body of knowledge that was training each generation of civil servant and telling them how to do their job. All right. And that imperial exam for most of Chinese history, it was a bottom-up process. It was quite good. Um, yes, there was some, you know, interposition by the government where there were specific things that it wanted in life. Um, but broadly speaking, it, it, it was surprisingly good. And I think that's part of the reason why China had, you know, such an outsized uh, contribution uh, to human development throughout history is because it had that institution. But the moral of the story here is that there was an economic section in those exams. And they would um, generally teach that the way, so your job is to maximize tax revenue. And the best way to maximize tax revenue is to maximize prosperity. Mm. Right. And so all of the rules written for hundreds and hundreds of years in the imperial, imperial exam were intended to help bureaucrats make their communities more prosperous so they could collect more taxes without bothering the people. Right. Whenever the people got bothered, it's extremely expensive. Right. Suppressing peasant revolts costs money. There goes your profits for the year. You don't want to do it. Right. And so, in other words, China had developed. And by the way, we can see a modern version of this in places like Singapore. Okay, Singapore is always kind of a gray area, I think, for a lot of libertarians. Like you hate it on paper, but mm. you don't complain about it too much uh, because the Singaporean philosophy is very much that sort of traditional, um, that symbiosis where, you know, yes, the state is a parasite, but it's a parasite that wants the host to stay alive. Mm. So it's like a, to be nice a and healthy. Parasite is practicing temperance in some way, right? Exactly. And indeed, the Singaporean government has much nicer stuff than the North Korean government, right? And, mm. you know, I mean, it's it ain't that bad. Um, and, you know, I mean, frankly, there are other uh, societies that have more, say, political rights, such as the Philippines. There are very few people who are migrating from Singapore to the Philippines. Okay. There's an awful lot of people who are migrating the opposite direction. Uh, so you can definitely make a sort of utilitarian case uh, for that for that outcome. But the moral of the story here is that in that Chinese model, so China, of course, uh, they were the inventors of of modern fiat money, as long as we know, uh, as far as we know. I mean, I'm sure children have played with fiat money. Um, but at any rate, China was the first to really institutionalize it starting around 950. Uh, and it started out as, as warehouse receipts called flying money. And these crowded out uh, silver at the time was the currency. They crowded out silver because flying receipts are easier to carry around than silver, right? And the government noticed and did what it always did, you know, which is, uh, you know, you have to centralize the silver so we can safeguard it against bandits. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, you know, standard process and we know what came next. Uh, and, you know, and then you had this political entrepreneur, uh, you know, you had the unlimited budget, uh, you had a socialist come in uh, on one sheet. Uh, and he, I mean, it was pretty much the whole line, but by the way, one of the first things he did was he appointed a commission to rewrite the Imperial exam, right? Because the Imperial exam was the equivalent at the time of, it was really bigger than university. It was, I mean, I, I mean, it was almost the constitution in a sense. Right. Um, but anyway, so what happened in that process is that the traditionally parasitic 
Chinese government then became a predator. Okay. Because the government could now, once, once they had fiat currency, they didn't care about prosperity anymore. All right. It, it no longer matters mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. your region is prosperous because you're not subsisting on the tax revenue. You're printing mm-hmm. it. Right. And so once you can pay the soldiers with money that you printed in your basement, you don't depend on prosperity as much as before. So you go from a situation where if the people starve, the government starves to a situation and can't pay its soldiers, by the way. So, you know, what comes next? Uh, Now you've got a situation where the people are starving, but the government's printing its own money. So, but that, that obviously, as we know, only lasts a particular period of time. So, so how did, I guess in those days, you know, did, did anyone reconcile the um, the fact that, you know, just conjuring it up out of thin air would end up just, you know, the, the, you know, the musical chairs would have to stop at some point, right? Like, did, did anyone kind of try and build a fail safe there or was it just, no, fuck it, let's do it. We found the holy grail. Let's just print the shit. Yeah. I mean, people push back. The conservatives push back. Mm-hmm. Right. They said, no, this is not the way that, 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 that it's been done in the past. Uh, you know, I think something will go wrong here. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, it, inflation is particularly pernicious because you never see the effects early on. Mm-hmm. There's always a delay to it. Uh, and so, you know, the poison tastes like medicine in the beginning. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, you know, this has been a universal problem with inflation. It's, it, it's a problem at this very Since moment. The beginning of time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, over the past two years, of course, all governments, almost all governments in the world have printed up a lot of money. Now they use that money to buy lockdowns. Right. And so, you know, relatively speaking, it tasted sweet at the time. Uh, and now we're starting to see some of the effects. But right. So, you know, people who opposed um, Wagan Shiba, uh, for example, they generally just oppose them because, you know, this is contrary to what we learned in the exam. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that, you know and, and people understood that the exam itself was, you know, an evolutionary process. It was it was to a large extent. It was bottom up uh, wisdom. And so, you know, they said if this is contrary to the exam, which, you know, has we've been using successfully for whatever centuries, we probably shouldn't do this. Uh, in other words, they had a sense that it was a load-bearing wall, but of course, you know, they didn't yet know what uh, inflation and hyperinflation, all these things, because uh, they hadn't, you know, they hadn't suffered it yet. At this point, we have no excuse. I mean, it's yeah, quite frustrating. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We've seen this thing over and over. It happens, and now it's happening again. And I mean, in fact, we've even got the perma war. It's it's quite astounding. Just every single time. You know, it's like if you have a table with little particles, you know, and you hit it with the right frequency and they just whoop, you know, they go into a particular pattern and whole, well, you know, humans have a pattern and every single time it's the same. Mm. How, how long ago was this this uh, example we gave in China? Uh, so it was about nine fifth. Uh, I want to say 980 was the Tang Dynasty. That's when they started with the warehouse money. They started monetizing it in the 10 hundreds. Um, they had a first hyperinflationary period. Uh, and they were invaded by one of the many surrounding tribes that they had made war with. Uh, so they seized the north of the country. Uh, the, those were the Jurchens. Um, and then they did it again, amazingly. So there was a surviving rump called the Southern Song at that point. Uh, so they did it again. They did the hyperinflation. They did the war with everybody. 
And at that point, uh, the group who, you know, uh, <laughs> proved to be strongest among the um, uh, tribes they made war with were the Mongols. Mm-hmm. And so the Mongols swept in, took over the Southern Song. Uh, then they connected that battery to a very large war engine that then took over most of the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Interesting. That, that's a whole other, that's a whole other rabbit hole. For sure it is. And, and of course, one of the first things the Mongols did was to reimpose hard money. Really? <laughs> they, were, they were no fools. Okay. So, so, so yeah, interesting. Okay. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Um, how, how long after Genghis Khan did that sort of Mongol defeat of uh, China occur? Uh, this would have been, I believe this was actually... Um, uh, the sun. So I think it was, was Obede, it a sun? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Who, who, uh, conquered the Southern song. Yeah. Okay. Right. That was around the time of Marco Polo, right? Yes. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I've done a little bit of reading there just out of curiosity, but it's a, it's an area I want to dive into at some point. I've, I've got a paper on it. Um, how paper money led to the Mongol, uh, conquests. Um, okay. Make sure after this, I'm going to grab that link off you. Cause that, that needs to go in here. Uh, maybe we'll do a future discussion on that. Um, okay, so, so to tie this, I mean, Jesus, we went on 10 tangents there. So to tie <laughs> this a lot of tangents here. Back to the, back to the um Yeah, that's right. We had a purpose. We did, we did. Um it's funny, I did I did the same thing with Tomer actually. We set out to have a discussion about the goddamn article and we went on eight thousand tangents about what the hell does anarchy mean. Um so all good. Um, yeah. there, there's, there's another quote you've, you've got in the, in the article, our current 400 year golden age began with the decentralization of the printing press, which allowed people to organize, to battle and to win fundamental human rights against, uh, governments. Um, so, so, you know, I had two questions here, which was what elements of, uh, this 400 years were most golden and what evidence do we have to the contrary? Now you kind of mentioned, you know, we had bits and pieces like Lincoln was, a was a evidence to the contrary, but kind of you've quoted 400 years of the golden age. Like talk me through some parts of that. Like what, what were the real, the golden elements in there? Curious. For sure. And it's always tricky how you characterize an era. Um, 400 mm. years is a big sweep of history, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of different places that were going through a lot of different uh, things, <laughs> not all of them positive. Um, so, I mean, the reason for selecting that moment, you know, if we take sort of the aggregate uh, human experience of the following 400 years, you know, I think in totality, it's certainly superior to the previous uh, 400 years. But yeah, I mean, there were there were clearly ups and downs. The general pattern in the period, and I think what distinguishes it uh, is that, uh, well, writing, right, cheap writing. Okay, people always misunderstand. It's not inventing the thing that matters. It's making it cheap that matters, right? So the internet, for example, it substantially existed full internet in about 1950, okay? And it was used in um, uh, like office uh, settings and, you know, uh, it, it technologically, it essentially existed. Um, what made the internet a revolution was making it cheap, right? So that was Moore's law uh, and, you know, specific elements, like for example, email, right? You know, and, and I mean, again, email, the idea of uh, writing a message and sending it from person to person, this was not new. 
right? Mm-hmm. But what email did is I it heard people it, did that in the olden days. Bingo, right? What email did was made it really, really cheap, right? Mm-hmm. So everything, every revolution that we're describing, we're not describing the invention of thing X. We're describing the moment it got cheap. Mm-hmm. That's what launches the revolution. So writing has existed for a very long time, depending on how you define writing. Uh, but what the magic of the 1600s um, in Europe was that writing got cheap. Now, China, of course, had invented the printing press and China had a very unique uh, tactic to stop it from becoming a tool of democratization, which were characters, right? So the Chinese character system was a very convenient mechanism to make sure that commoners could not be reached by these disruptive tools, right? So how? how? Because in order to learn how to read characters, you had to be highly educated. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was, it, you know, it was um, uh, a bit like putting a gate in and saying that only the elites can participate in this conversation. If you're, uh, you know, only rich people, um, if you're not rich, then you're not welcome into this conversation. A very, very elegant way to do that, it turns out, is to use a super secret code that has 10,000 characters that you have to spend years and years learning. So the Chinese had substantially overcome the problem of the printing press, the political threat of the printing press, by standardizing on characters. Now, there were various countermeasures that were used, such as a phonetic alphabet, where like, you know, uh, you would take some character that's pronounced ah, and then you'd use that character to represent the sound ah, okay? And so you could still communicate, right? It was more or less like a pleb code. Um, By the way, the, the Japanese alphabet is based on that. Um, mm, it, it's, okay. it's an imitation of that workaround. Um, but at any rate, that was one tactic that the Chinese government used to try to limit the ability to get your message around. Uh, in Europe, you had no such thing. It was, it was quite a bit uh, easier uh, to learn how to read, particularly the, the um, Protestants put a lot of emphasis on reading uh, because they felt that, you know, it would help you, you know, you had to read the Bible in order to it would help you achieve wisdom or, or, or grace. Um, But right. So in Europe, uh, when the printing press did hit, um, you know, it hit sort of more fertile ground because uh, so many more people could read, but just because it was so much easier to read. And what the printing press did is that allowed you to get over the fundamental coordination problem, right? Which, you know, throughout history, the game in military has been that, the center has more resources because it seizes them by violence. So the center has more resources, but the edge tends to be bigger. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of human history has been various technologies that rearranged, you know, so like guns, for example, are fundamentally democratizing because it takes very, very little training to learn how to use a gun. You have child armies in Africa that I don't know, they spend five minutes training a kid on an AK and they're more or less useful. Um, You know, this this is uh, abnormal in history that you can um, make people so quickly lethal. Um, But at any rate, for, you know, a lot of history, that's sort of the trade-off. It's the centralization versus cost of organizing. And what writing did, and bringing us to what Bitcoin does, um, but what writing did was dramatically lower the costs of organizing, right? So you could very quickly print out a message, get that out to 10,000 peasants. They show up, you know, the centralized authority cannot, I mean, they have to be distributed over a large area. So, 
you know, you've already um, murdered the Abbey, burned, stolen <laughs> the stores. Yeah, you've you've already done what you're going to do. You've incurred significant costs, the local, you know, state proxies by the time their enforcers even show up. Um, of course, the enforcers are going to get no cooperation. So, you know, everybody's going to see, I didn't see a darn thing. It's the weirdest thing. Yeah, no, I was mm-hmm. sleeping the whole time. Why? Mm-hmm. Because otherwise they're next, <laughs> next time mm-hmm. around, because the soldiers have to go at some point, right? They got to leave town because, you know, there's something else going on uh, over the next mountain pass. Uh, so, you know, writing fundamentally rearranged that balance of power towards the people. And I mean, that's, you know, what brought us to several hundred years of bloody conflict where, you know, the the, the church at that point um, had largely become an adjunct of the state. You know, they had sort of worked out a way to pillage together uh, in many ways, at, at least the corrupt elements of the church. Uh, and so the state and church sort of, you know, the enemy, my enemy is my friend. So they sort of got, historically, they'd been quite hostile to each other because they were competitors. Um, and so they got together and kind of put up a unified face against the people. And broadly speaking, they lost, or at least they had to come out with a negotiated settlement, which we now call limited government. Mm-hmm. So that included, you know, limited monarchy, uh, Magna Carta, um, constitutions, right? We, we have all these elements of it. And, you know, it's important when we are facing fundamental threats to some of the rights that were won during that contest you know, it's important to understand um, the reason why they were put in there. It wasn't generosity. It was because the alternative is is unpleasant. People mm-hmm. will not stand, right? Uh, you, you know, if we focus it on speech, not to get too far on a tangent, if we focus it on speech, the fundamental role in that contest between people and power, right? The fundamental role of freedom of speech is that people, you want people to be able to communicate their dissatisfaction before they get too angry. Right. Um, if you have a neighbor and there's a possibility that you'll annoy each other, you don't want to make it impossible for him to communicate to you. You want him to let him know if you're leaving your trash cans in front of his driveway, you would like him to communicate this fact to you. And if you really have to do it or really, really want to do it, then fine. But it's very important that you get that feedback mechanism so you know what the threats are. Yeah, feedback is the is the golden word there. Like that, that's the whole point of freedom of speech. Like for me, I think I, I was on a spaces with JP Sears and a couple other guys. Like I think it was almost like a year ago now, and and we we're kind of talking about freedom of speech. And and someone asked the question like, why is it important? And you know, everyone's like, oh, you know, because it's a human right and everything. And I, and I kind of jumped in and I said, look, why it's important. Yeah, why? Why? And the 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 reason is like, you know, you you we need to discover truth in some way because like the more true that the more accurately you're oriented, the more, you know, I guess morally or functionally you can behave and you can't do that without a feedback mechanism and on a societal scale on the macro scale freedom of speech is how we come to some form of truth. Like it's how you fucking realize if, you know, you're doing the wrong thing. You, you cannot know without being able to point it out. Right. And in turn, if you can't figure out the truth, then you are asymptotically guaranteed to go off a cliff. Mm -hmm. Totally. Because the the fiat elites, the the parasites we were talking about earlier, the the sort of top-down imposed elites, those fiat elites, they do the darndest things. They do really Mm -hmm. weird stuff. We've seen a lot of it over the the last two years, some of which I'm not going to mention here because the fiat elites are still enforcing. Okay. Yes. 
um, they've done a lot of wacky shit and they will keep doing it. And if we do not have those feedback mechanisms, A, they will continue trying to drive us off a cliff. B, they will not hear us warning them until the point where we who see the cliff will have to react more kinetically to the threat. So mm -hmm. none of us want any of that. So what would be super nice is if they could put away their freaking totalitarian instincts for a moment and understand why these fundamental rights exist. So coming back to the, the, the golden age again, so this 400 years was not, when you say golden age, you don't necessarily mean um, everything was, you know, sunshine and rainbows and kumbaya. Sure. It was like, it was golden in the sense that we managed to rest specific um, pieces of a, of a, I guess, a social puzzle uh, in which, um, you know, we, we had the basis of like uh, a functional existence with property rights, basically, for lack of a better way of saying it, right? Yeah. And in, in modern terms, um, in the US, the term liberal has been perverted, of course. Um, mm. But right, in, in modern terms, you know, that that's, I mean, it would be nice if we just reclaimed the word, but anywhere, at any rate, right, that is that is sort of the liberal consensus, right? And and it's timing it from the resolution of those bloody battles um, where, you know, there was that limited government, you had fundamental human rights, governments knew don't cross this line. And again, it's not because we're asking the governments to be nice, it's because if you cross those lines, nobody likes what comes next. You can't cross those lines. Um, and so, right. You know, when I call it 400 years, I mean, of course, right. Nothing is a golden age for everybody. This was the gilded age game. Uh, you know, if I say Japan is a nice place to live, I'm certain there's somebody in Japan who's miserable or suicidal so, or whatever. Yeah. Now, of course, but broadly speaking, it's a pretty decent place to live in the grand scheme of human history. Right. And so, yeah. Um, but right. Timing it from the beginning of that sort of liberal consensus, I think in many ways, you know, if we look at almost any element of, you know, human achievement, uh, everything gets substantially or in aggregate, it tends to get better uh, than what came before it. And, you know, then the preceding 10,000 years of civilization uh, produced, I mean, it's, it's, it's really been an impressive 400 years uh, in terms of, you know, what we invented, uh, in terms of the freedom of behavior for individuals. So I'm a trained economist and we tend to define the good as, you know, people having the maximum number of options. Mm -hmm. uh, it may sound strange, but anyway, that's the standard definition in economics of what's good. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, so, uh, I mean, a, a more poetic way might be, you know, people could achieve their flourishing and they could, you know, chase their dreams and actually have a chance of, of you know, reaching them and things like that. Um, so, I mean, in all those, you know, sorts of measures, which, I mean, are, are critically important, that's what the whole game's about. Um, you know, it's not it's not only material accumulation, it's it's uh, spiritual, it's fulfillment, uh, living lives that are satisfyingly busy. Uh, it, it, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that absolutely matter. People die for these things. Um, and, you know, if we sort of compare that uh, sort of liberal consensus, uh, it really which today for American audiences, we would maybe call like a free market or a libertarian consensus. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's that's really been an, an impressive swath. And, you know, I think what's concerning to a lot of people um, is how much it's been under threat. And really, those threats have dramatically magnetized or magnified specifically since the fiat era. Right. So the fiat era 
the modern fiat era really began around 19, the early 1900s. Um, you know, World War I uh, was absolutely a fiat-caused war. Uh, governments, um, you know, they looked at their war, their ability to wage war, given that fiat allowed them to essentially seize all of the resources in their society. And they anticipated that they would not run out of money. Uh, they could just uh, keep tapping us. And, you know, once one government does that, the others follow suit, or mm-hmm. they did follow suit at any rate. Uh, and, you know, in a sense, World War II is really just a continuation. Um, the war sort of didn't stop. One side took a breather uh, and, you know, sort of. Um, but at any rate, and, and, you know, the changes that occurred in society during World War One and Two. Um, at least in Western societies, they have largely not been reversed uh, to date. Uh, I know yeah. certainly in the U.S., the the massive increase in government control uh, that that came in, you know, sort of ratchet like each war basically doubles the government. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it's a big war, uh, and each one of those, you know, they they might have gone back a third of the way, you know, a very small percent of the way that they went back, and so we're still stuck with it. Um, now it would be, you know, nice to get to a period where we can either stop it or, uh, we can reverse it, um, at, you know, whatever speed necessary. Um, there are reforms by the way, that could really go a long ways to, um, reversing it. Uh, just speaking about the U S for example, uh, you know, we have a very specific law, uh, called the Pendleton act in, uh, the late, uh, 18th century that established the professional civil service. And it gave them various rights, like the president can't just come in and fire them. And that created a permanent parasitic bureaucratic class that had its own interests completely separate from the people's as expressed through the politicians. Um, There's a British movie called A Very British Coup. Um, which uh, uh, people might enjoy, but anyway, that 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 sort of gives a picture. It's it's written by left wingers, and so they've got kind of this you know crazy left winger who who wins office, and then the entire bureaucracy. He's basically he ends up alone in his office with a phone that's not connected. Okay, <laughs> and, you know it's 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 not far from the truth. I mean, we certainly saw that the past couple of years in the U.S. We're seeing that in Brazil, uh, where you know there's been essentially a coup by the. Um, I don't want to get in any trouble. So at any rate, there's been disagreements over who runs the government down there. Mm-hmm. Um, but right. So the moral of the story here is that that Pendleton Act, it's a very specific law. Uh, in the U.S., we had a great reversal in the decline in President Andrew Jackson. Right. This is in the early part of the uh, 1800s. And he came in and fired 60 percent of the federal workforce. Now, when you fire 60%, it's because the other 40% said, please, please, please don't fire me. All right. You have essentially enslaved the other 40%. All right. And so what he was able to achieve was he, I mean, it was, you know, everything that people wanted. They actually uh, threw out the central bank. Uh, You know, they had a bunch of reforms where, and, you know, this is unimaginable to, I think, Westerners today that you could, Mm, mm. you could elect somebody who you agree with. They would win office, and then literally you would get the world you dream of. It's completely unimaginable. Um, you know, in Europe, the permanent bureaucracy, I mean, you know, you saw it during the recent French election where there were a number of uh, top, top French bureaucrats who said, if Le Pen wins, um, I will stop her. This, this is supposed to be a democracy, right? <laughs> like, you know, which part, 
which part of the equation did I miss there? Um, but anyway, the point being that there are very identifiable concrete uh, reforms that you could make. Uh, you know, it's within your power to reform the Pendleton Act and whatever the equivalent is in these other countries. And you could substantially reverse it um, without bloodshed. Do you think at this point, though, they're realistic? And do you think the landscape has changed with the with the size and scale of, you know, these bureaucratic leviathans that exist at this point? Because, like, you know, I mean, everything is on such shaky footing at the moment. Like, I mean, Jerome Powell fucking farts and, like, you know, Biden, you know, says the wrong word and, you know, three days later they're walking things back because everything's on, like, a knife's edge. Like, you know, the... Nothing even needs to happen at this point. And someone just says a word and the word gets misconstrued. And then it, that kind of like spreads like wildfire and everything starts to break the fuck down. So, so I wonder like whether we're, we're at a populational scale and a, and a systemic integrated scale where a reform like that wouldn't even do anything at this point. Um, or I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm too pessimistic. I mean, there have been people who have managed quite a bit. They've managed it with very, very small countries with much worse constraints than most. So one example is Hungary, uh, Hungary with Orban. Um, Hungary is almost a worst case scenario, right? I mean, um, the EU is extremely popular, partly for the redistribution. Uh, the EU itself has, you know, very strict rules. It's 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 very Gestapo. Um, it's very gangster uh, mm-hmm. in how it enforces those rules. Uh, you know, there are, you would never expect that a place like Hungary would actually have um, much freedom of maneuver. And, you know, Orban uh, has done quite a bit. Um, of course, the usual suspects are making the usual sounds. Um, but it, it, I mean, I think to a certain degree, you know, the beauty of democracy is that as long as you have a tiny little bit of it, um, that, that gets magnified if people are sufficiently angry, right? So, for example, if you take China, so China censors uh, speech uh, openly on, you know, its homegrown Twitter called Weibo. And every so often, somebody will, they'll like put up a meme of like Winnie the Pooh falling over, okay? And, you know, the shtick is, of course, President Xi kind of looks like Winnie the Pooh. And that freaking thing will spread. I mean, you'll have like 150 million and, you know, 20,000 likes and oh, now in the grand scheme as a amateur content producer, that is not the best meme imaginable. Okay. I, I have seen better memes than that uh, on Tuesday morning, Uh, but the key to it is that as you squeeze speech, the tiny little surviving bits Mm -hmm. get magnified like a thousandfold. Right. So the moral of the story here is that if you have just a tiny bit of democracy, then People, there's going to be some entrepreneur. He might be a good guy. He might be a bad guy. There are a number of bad guys in Germany, for example. Uh, but anyway, some entrepreneur is going to come and magnify that tiny little scrap. You hope it's the good guy. Usually, usually it tends to be because they are trying to appeal to the people, and the you know most people are actually good. Um, but anyway, and and then that gets magnified, and at that point, they can overcome anything. Right. This is kind of the lesson of the French Revolution, right? Is that, you know, Louis XIV had imposed this totalitarian state. 
it was a thing of beauty. I mean, just every aspect of it was, you know, the incentives were all aligned and, you know, this, this uh, top-down elite, they were all, they were in control. They were on top of the world. And guess what? The whole thing collapsed. And the reason it collapsed is because it lost popular support. There was actually, I mean, there was just a shred of democracy in France at the time, um, but it lost popular support. And once it lost popular support, all of the colonels, okay, the middle management in the army, all right, they started looking around. They've got a little calculator in their head where they're calculating the odds that either side is going to win, okay, and whether it's the people counting the votes or whether it's the middle management in the army, these people are rational actors. They may, you know, be part of the power structure, but if they perceive that the regime is so unpopular that it's going to be gone soon, they will flip. We see this in North Korea, right? Uh, President Kim has very little room for maneuver. He probably has less than Boris Johnson. The guy can't do anything. He's got to ask permission. He's a dictator, mm. right? But the reason is because there's a group of people, I guess 50 or 100 people, you know, they have military, they probably have business connections like smug or, you know, import, export, whatever, um, using, you know, human slaves to mine timber, whatever it is. And those people are his electorate, right? He has to respond to those. So the more, and, and, you know, when he crushes the people, when he, you know, when, when little babies are starving and such, which, you know, frequently occurs in North Korea, um, those people to a certain degree care. You know, so what? Why are people still alive in North Korea? Be, because there are some constraints on him. He does have an electorate. It's not a great electorate. It'd be nice if they cared more about, you know, the regular people in North Korea. But there is something there. So the point in this context is that no matter how bad it looks, you know, um, first of all, there's always some degree of democracy, no matter what the formal system says. This is partly why I think. Democracy, for all its flaws, it keeps coming back again and again, because when times get tough, it's always a democracy. It's always a question of how many men with how many guns, and that's what's going to happen next, right? This, this is universally throughout history, again, contingent on the particular military technology involved. We could imagine sci-fi with AI and things like that, which is for another time. Um, at any rate, the moral of the story here is that no matter how dire it looks, the harder it's squeezed, you know, the higher pressure it eventually shoots out. I agree with that. Um, I, I want to I want to push on the democracy piece because, um, you know, I sit squarely in the in the Hoppian school of uh, democracies. The greatest scam ever to be perpetrated on humanity. Yeah. But um, maybe maybe this is a semantics thing because maybe when you're refer when you're using the word democracy, you're referring to something else. But for, for um, I guess I, I wanted to echo one thing you said about the um, the squeezing the, the the pressure. Like I just finished reading uh, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, which was really interesting, and particularly. After 1942, as things started to unravel for Hitler, it was that same thing that you just mentioned about uh, King Kim, which is his generals, like his effective electorate, the people around him, started basically disagreeing with some of the shit. Um, and it got worse and worse as things began. 
began to destabilize. And when people ask me about like how Bitcoin's going to win in the end, this is effectively the answer that I give them. At some point, uh, the bureaucrats that originally stood to gain from the persistence of the state start to look at the whole fucking edifice crumbling and they're like, you know what? Fuck this shit. I'm going to grab myself some Bitcoin. Um, and as they start to grab themselves some Bitcoin, all of a sudden they get hooked and all of a sudden, like they, their own personal calculus begins to change. As you said, you know, they got this little computer in their head. So, so, I, so yes, I, I guess I agree with that. I guess, you know, maybe, and this may, this may need to be delved into in a, in a, in a future episode. I think we're going to, cause I'm only like a third of the way through my questions here. So I think we're going to have to do a whole little series here, Yeah. but um, democracy, that word fucking makes me cringe. Right. Like I know. And I am sympathetic. Um, uh, I agree with Hoppy. Uh, I, I completely agree that, you know, a, uh, uh, the person who owns should decide. Uh, and so countries should be private property and the, you know, best time tested mechanism of doing that is the monarchy. Mm -hmm. I am a massive fan of monarchy. However, I think that there is an hierarchy where we can put monarchy at the top and then we have democracy, I think without a doubt below that, but the problem, so it's captured by a famous line by uh, William F. Buckley, I would rather be ruled by the first thousand people in the Boston phone book than the faculty of Harvard mm -hmm. University, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And so because monarchy is not in the Overton window, uh, it's not in the range of commonly accepted opinions. Uh, I don't bother advocating it most of the time because it's going to fall on deaf ears, deaf ears, and you're going to sound like an insane person. Um, but yes, I mean, between you and me, I think monarchy is, is absolutely, it is, it has proven itself. Um, but now given that that's not on the menu at the moment, it quite likely will be in the future, but it's not on the uh, menu in the moment. Now it's between the thousand, you know, it's between the phone book and the faculty of Harvard and the difference there, I will choose the phone book every single time. Do they screw up? Yes. Are they stupid? Yes. Um, however, the faculty of Harvard has this they will go freaking anywhere. There's a nice um, example um, that comes from statistics, actually, which is called the drunken firing squad. Okay. And the idea is that you have a firing squad. They're aiming at a target. The target, you know, it's a bullseye. Okay. And they're all drunk and you got a hundred of them. Mm -hmm. Now they're going to shoot. One of them is going to shoot too high. One of them is going to shoot too low. The other guy's going to shoot way over there. The other guy's going to get almost real close. The other guy's going to real far off. Now, take those 100 shots and take the statistical average, and it's going to be on bullseye, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and now, on the other hand, on the other hand, take a target that is biased, okay? Like you've got a bright light, okay? You've got something that is biasing the target, or you've got a small child playing right next to the target to the right of it, not to the left, to the right. Okay. If you've got any kind of factor in there that is biasing in it in any way, then the best sharpshooter in the world is going to tend to get it off. And he's 10, he, he's, he's going to tend to do worse than the drunk firing squad. So the moral of the story is that if yes, people do stupid things, but they normally do stupid things because they are obeying some corrupt elite. It could be the radio in Rwanda 
right? There are a number of uh, centers of influence, um, fiat centers of influence that can lead people astray. But the moral of the story is that the people themselves will tend to come out to amazingly good conclusions. What you should be suspicious of is any institution that is trying to have an outsized influence. And of course, the faculty of Harvard being the practical alternative to the first thousand people in the phone book, that is 100% corrupted institution, right? And so, you know, given that that's currently the Overton window, I root for democracy. Um, I, you know, I'm a libertarian. Libertarians love complaining about how stupid voters are. Absolutely agreed. Compared to the faculty of Harvard, they're brilliant. Interesting. Um, man, there's so many places I want to take that because, I mean, t- to me, it's almost, um, I guess what, what you're describing there, the shooters that are all shooting in different directions and finding, you know, taking the statistical average to me sounds far more like anarchy than it does democracy. Um, oh, I'm an anarchist. Yeah. I'm yeah, certainly yeah, a moral yeah. anarchist. Uh, there, there are transaction costs, you know, that have to be taken into account. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, certainly as a long-term goal, I'm an anarchist. So like if we're talking about Mars, for example, Mars should be an anarchy, uh, uh, i.e. owned by whoever homesteads it according to the common law. Totally, totally. Um, I mean, my, my guess is, though, that we're going to have to transform the, the landscape of Earth long before we figure that shit out because, you know, in, in, the, in the spirit of uh, Jordan Peterson, who we've mentioned a couple of times, like, we need to clean our own room before we go and, like, start colonizing something else. You oh, know, we, sure. we have a little thing yeah. called oxygen here <laughs> that, we, yeah, yeah. that we might yeah, find no, useful. Yeah, no, I'm just using Mars as an example. That, as an example, know, yeah, yeah. Right. So in other words, anarchy on Earth would involve a lot of transact, uh, basically transaction costs because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. people currently own it in various flavors. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, so, yes, I'm very open to the idea that we might not want to go directly to anarchy because a lot of those transaction costs could be substantial. But I mean, certainly on a moral level, if we could like start over. So one example might be Mars. Another example mm-hmm. would be Seasteading. Right. So, you know, I want Seasteads to be sovereign and uh, accorded the same uh, rights as uh, governments currently get. Mm. So, so then com- coming back to what you were mentioning earlier, so, so this, that you, you, you called it a seed of democracy being kind of the, um, the counterbalance to, like, to complete totalitarianism. Could, could we maybe reframe that as maybe a seed of anarchy? Maybe, maybe that's what it was. It wasn't really, um, you know... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, people use anarchy in two different ways, right? One way they use it is chaos. And again, mm. that's the definition that is enemies. Totally. Right? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I mean, it, it, um, you know, if you study anarchic societies, with meaning uh, authorities bottom up, um, you know, of course, most of human history has been arranged that way. Um, if people go to uh, primitive uh, societies so-called primitive societies, because this will be transcripted, uh, mm-hmm. and they marvel at how safe and orderly and, you know, um, and, you know, because, I mean, these are, I was just watching a documentary uh, the other day, uh, it was actually on a travel channel, and he was going to a Nigerian slum, and the police are non-operative there, um, they don't enter, and so when there's a crime, you know, he asked people, what happens when people steal things, and they said, well, um, we exile them from the community. First, we put them on a boat 
and we go around and we announce to everybody that this person is a thief, and then we send them out of the community. And apparently that works because think about it, right? You exile this person. That means their family, their friends, everybody they knew since you know they grew up. In Nigeria, those connections are much more important, right? Partly because families and social ties are stronger, partly because life is harder. Okay, so you have just taken all that away from them. But now what's step two? Where, where are they going to go live? Well, they're going to have to go to another slum. In that slum, guarantee you, somebody's going to say, where are you from? <laughs> right? Yeah. So it, this is like cancel culture on steroids. I mean, for real, for life, they're going to have to go live under a bridge with other outlaws. And this is not cool country music outlaw. This is, you know, this is like living under the bridge with the sex predators outlaws, all right? This is not a good life. That is the bottom-up mechanism. And he said there is no crime here. Nobody locks their doors. Mm -hmm. He took the travel guy, right? He, he took him over to his house. The door's unlocked. He's got the PlayStation. He's got all this stuff. These are people living on, you know, right on the edge in Nigeria. These are not wealthy people. There's no crime. Why? Because that's the punishment. And by the way, the person who makes that decision, the judge, was the elder. Yeah, the, the community it, elder. It's, everybody it's basically it's basically the way the way the ancients functioned mm -hmm. to a large degree. Ostracism being a far better, you know, method of, um, you know, I guess. I guess it's it's feedback, you know. That, yep. That's literally what it Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Um, right. At the at the social at the societal scale. Yeah. Uh, Pete, running out of time on this one. So yeah. what? what I, we, we need to go through the rest of this shit. So we'll let's book in a second uh, <laughs> we'll piece, yes. and we'll, we'll do another two hours. But Absolutely. is there anything you want to kind of wrap up this segment with right now? Um, you know, maybe somewhere people can follow you or something like that. Um, if we push on to a third and fourth. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't have any big encapsulating thoughts at the moment. Uh, hopefully I will at the end there. Um, but yes, people can follow me. I'm on Twitter at Prof Stange. Uh, I'm still hanging out there. Hopefully Elon's uh, buy goes through. If it doesn't, then I guess I'll have to find another home. Um, <laughs> also visit the organizations that uh, feed my kids. Uh, Heritage at Heritage. Um at Mises, Mises Institute. And of course, I'm a huge fan of uh, Zero Hedge as always. Amazing, amazing. All right, Pete, thank you so much, man. All right. Thank you for listening to the Wake Up Podcast. Find us on the Fountain app and send us a boost with a comment. I'll try and read them each week and send you a shout out. And remember to grab a copy of the Uncommunist Manifesto and join us in defeating plague that is consuming our world. <laughs>